Well, good morning. It's great seeing you guys here, and I want to thank you. Several of you um, have started saying, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm getting this, what we're up to here. If you're new, what we're talking about is that church is everywhere. Uh, and it's not just us doing a religious thing, it's us being human beings in the context of community. And so we're unpacking that, and we've, we're looking at these six communal practices that you see on the front of your worship guide, and these came from you, about 70 of our personal churches saying, this is what we do when we're together, this is how we're able to be who we are. And last week we looked at, okay, each of these, these personal churches say, we, we embrace the mission together, we don't look just to the prof- professionals to do it, we do it. This weekend we're looking at the second communal practice as we're calling it, and it's called just follow Jesus together. That's what we do. We follow Jesus, we do it together. And when I see that phrase, I, I do think of something that many of you have asked me about. Uh, some of you have come up and said, you left us hanging. Like a, three, four, five weeks ago, you, you told us your son Andrew, uh, your oldest son Andrew is climbing Denali, the highest mountain in North America, and you had not told us what happened. Is he still up there? Uh, did he ever come back down? Did he make it? Did he? Su- and so I'm here to tell you he successfully summited uh, Denali, 20,320 feet, he and his team, and they, thank you, yeah, they safely... They safely returned, which is also uh, just as important. And he had a photo taken of him up on the summit, uh, and he's actually holding my book, Life of the Capital L, over. And I didn't know that. He surprised me with that, and I thought, oh my word, you, they count ounces, and he packed that. And part of it was because they, they get caught in blizzards, and he wanted to read it, and they talked about it as a team. But he, I think another reason was that uh, his younger brother, Joel, had climbed a couple of years ago the highest mountain in the contiguous U.S. Uh, out in Colorado, and this is it. We don't have a, a screenshot, but that tells you. So Joel had made a photo like that, and so Andrew said, "Okay, we're going to up you by 6,000 feet." And I think there's a little brother stuff that's going on there. Um, when we hear the phrase "follow Jesus together," I think of Andrew climbing this mountain. Here's why. He couldn't have done it alone. In fact, in another photograph, you can see the day before they summited, another team summited. And this is the same. If you look at the bottom left-hand corner, you will see five specks. Those specks are, are mountaineers. They're climbing. They're roped together. And they are about to come up to what is known as Summit Ridge and then head up to the summit. You don't climb Denali alone. You do it together. And everything that they dealt with, very steep stuff, they roped together. Bad weather, they're roped together. Precarious knife-edged ridges, they're roped together. Standing on slopes that are far more steep than most of us would be comfortable with, you do it together. And the view is amazing. But it comes as a result of them doing it together. Let me tell you what we mean by following Jesus together. When we interviewed these these communities, this is what they said. When you follow Jesus together, this is what we do. Let's bring that slide back up. And I skipped it a moment ago. They believe the blueprint Jesus gave us for how to live is an everyday of life 
every day of month, every day of the week endeavor, and can only be lived out fully in the context of community. So when you see that phrase, follow Jesus together, you might even have in your mind climbing a mountain together. So let me ask you this about Andrew and their expedition. When they climbed Denali, what was more important to them? Summiting and returning safely or being an effective team? I'm not answering that question for you. You need to think about it. What was more important to them as an expedition team? Summiting safely or being an effective team? Yes. You don't do one without the other. In fact, you do one, you're going to accomplish the other. There's that, that summiting safely, returning safely, being an effective team. You do one, you do the other. You can't do one without the other. Now, I want you to look at that phrase, follow Jesus together. Which is it that we do? Do we follow Jesus or do we do it together? Do we follow Jesus or do we become the body of Christ together? Which is it? That's another one of them preacher questions. I'm not answering. Yes, it's both. But here's what a lot of us don't realize is that when we follow Jesus, a lot of people think, okay, I'm going to do a me and Jesus thing. It's just going to be, I'm going to follow Jesus, and people have hurt me too much over, over time, and it's just going to be a me and Jesus. When you see what we're taught by Jesus, by his disciples, I don't really follow Jesus without also doing it together. Last week we looked at 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 and 10 says, you guys, you're chosen people, you're royal priesthood, you're holy nation, you're people belonging to God. Okay, here's the context of that. That was in verse 9 and 10. I want you to look a couple of verses earlier in verse 4 and 5 of 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter says, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now go back, look at verse 5 again. You also, and I don't want to be too... Uh, uh, too redundant here, but I'm going to ask you to do something. I want you to say that those three words, like living stones, let's all say it together. One, two, three, like living stones. Um, hopefully that's echoing not just around these rooms, but in your heart, and that's what you'll take away today, the significance that that is a phenomenal and beautiful and powerful and life-giving phrase. And you're being built into a spiritual house. So we're talking about what does it mean to follow Jesus together. I want you to relate that with that phrase, living stones. And here's, here's how we can do it. Seeing following Jesus and relating that to the word living and seeing together related to the word stones. Follow Jesus is talking about living. Doing it together is talking about being stones. Now let's unpack them one at a time. Let's take that first phrase. Follow Jesus together. What does it look like to, to be following Jesus together? And the way we gain insight to that is I want us to camp out on that adjective that Peter uses, living. 
When he's talking about living stones, he's not just talking about lung breathing and heart beating. He's referring to something far more core to who we are in the gospel. Why did the disciples give their lives? Is it because there was a new religion in town they thought was pretty cool? Some new rules to keep that they thought would be kind of impressive to keep? Is it because of a new ideology? No, the disciples gave their lives because Christ came to give his life. And to not just give his life paying a penalty, but entrusting his life to us. We've been talking about being set free. Free to be the church. Every one of us is born into this realm of sin and death. Christ comes to release us out of darkness into light, but out of death into life. In fact, that prison launches us into a new way of being human, and we're out here and we're freed not just from, we're not just forgiven of our sins, but we're freed too to be with each other, to be the church. And so as you're looking at that open prison cell door, and if I, can I go back in? Do I sin as a follower of Jesus? Yes. Am I forgiven? Yes. Is that door ever locked again? No. Do I lose my salvation? No. So, but when I come out that first time, it's like a birthing canal. That's the image of the New Testament. When we come to Christ, we come through a birthing canal out of deadness into life. Paul says we're all dead in our trespasses and sins. God said in the garden, you disobey me, you shall surely die. They didn't believe that. They said, we know how to be best and fulfilled human beings on our own. Thank you very much. They sinned. They died. We've been born, every one of us ever since has been born into a fallen condition in that prison of sin and death. That's not related to our circumstances. I know people behind who are incarcerated behind literal prison bars who have taught me more about freedom than people outside of prisons in this country. It's not circumstantial. It's heart. It's humanity. It has everything to do with us learning this cadence of what does it mean to be really free? And so you start looking at different passages in the New Testament and you see how this is a birthing canal. There's something significant that happened when I trusted Christ. Or if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, Something significant is going to happen when you do. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. And he is the head of the body. The church. Remember we talked about the Greek word behind church last week. Ekklesia. The root word is kaleo, to call. We are the called out ones. The significance of church is not as an institution, not where a bunch of people meet. The significance of church is who we are as a people. And we're the ekklesia. We're the called out people. But what have we been called out of? out of death into life. Remember when Jesus had that conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he said, hey Nick, I don't know if he really called him that, but he said, listen, you've got to be born again. You've got to come alive in a way that you've never been alive before. And he is the head of the body, the church, the ecclesia. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, birthing canal, coming out of that prison cell. It's not just hanging around the threshold, but coming out here and learning life. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, this is what we're called. I love this. But you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and you've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. And here's what we're called, to the church, 
the called out ones, the ecclesia, to the church of the firstborn. The significance of who we are as the church is we have joined Jesus as the firstborn of the new creation. He's about restoring that which has been broken and fallen. And all the universe, all the, all the earth is groaning in anticipation for this process to be complete. We're the firstborn in that process. When we come to Christ, we leave this realm of death. We come into the realm of life. Not just heart-bitting life, not just lung-breathing life. As you guys know, I refer to it, life with a capital L. That's why I called the book that. It is what the gospel is liberating us to do. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who've been called according to his purpose. For those God, whom God foreknew, he also predestined. What's his purpose? Here we go. To be conformed to the image of his son. In the garden, humans imaged God perfectly, male and female, in community. We're not broken and isolated. But now, we can be once again conformed to his icon, to his image, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So it was this whole notion of being birthed into a new sphere of existence, a new way of doing work, doing dinners, doing funerals, doing parties, doing grieving, doing laughing. It's to do it alive. When I come out of that prison cell, I'm now free, but will I live free? When I come out of that prison cell, I'm now alive, but will I live life? And it's at the core of why Peter was so passionate. So when he says living stones, he's referring to, we are now a community of, of alive, living with a capital L. It was a theme you see over and over. First Peter um, chapter 1, verse 18, he says, For you know, that, so this is the previous chapter, you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from what? From one religion into another. No, you were redeemed from an empty way of existence, of life handed down to you from your ancestors. You're redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And over and over, you see this. I have a blast as we going back through and just reviewing. What did Peter think about this life that Jesus came to give? Uh, there's a time when Jesus, his, his, his teaching was getting kind of high up in terms of the stakes, saying, you've got to give it all. You've got to come to me with everything you've got. Some people were leaving him. And Jesus looked at his disciples and says, you're going to leave me too? Peter said, John chapter 6, verse 68, he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone, that's the Greek, it's emphatic, you, really, you alone have the words of this new religion. Ah, you, have, you alone have words of eternal life. Eternal life is present tense, not just future tense. It is in heaven, undiluted, undeterred by our fallenness. But the moment that I come to Christ, I start experiencing this eternal life. Acts, you see how Peter was preaching in the early churches that was being born. Acts chapter 3, verse 15, when Peter was at, in Jerusalem at Solomon's Colonnade, uh, he, he proclaimed this. He says, you killed the author of this new religion. No. You killed the author of life. But God raised him from the dead, and we're witnesses of this. Acts chapter 5, verse 20. And Peter and the other apostles, they get put into prison for proclaiming the gospel. Uh, there's a jailbreak in the middle of the night. Angels release him. 
This is what the angel says. Okay, now that you've been freed, go, Acts 5.20, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new religion. Now, this new life. Acts 11, verse 18, uh, Peter's telling the believers in Jerusalem about his vision in Joppa, about how the gospel is for everyone, not just the Jews. And when they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, so then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So when I'm lured back in by temptation and I sin and I go back in that cell, the cell door doesn't get locked, I don't lose my salvation. But the, the initial time is repentance when I come to Christ and every other time after. When I'm repenting, metanoia, turning from that, I'm turning to life. John, at the end of his gospel, he says, guys, let me tell you why I wrote my gospel. These are real people doing real breakfasts, real businesses, real journeys. And he says, this is why I wrote it. John chapter 20, verse 31. These things I have written to you that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We fly through that. Don't do it. Settle there. He's just said, I wrote my gospel for two reasons. Let's break it down, part A and part B. Reason one, reason two. He says, these things are written, part A, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. But also part B, that by believing you may have life in his name. What do most of us spend our energies on in churches and in ministries? Part A. Hey, you need to believe that Jesus is Messiah so you can be forgiven of your sins headed to heaven. Is that true? Absolutely. Do we need to preach it without apology? But we've got a culture. All the cultures all around the world are turning down the volume of our proclamation of part A. And you know why? Because they're not seeing part B. We're inarticulate when it comes to talking about what life in his name looks like on a daily basis when we're doing our journeys. John chapter 10, verse 10, I think Jesus was relatively clear. How about you? He says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, which, by the way, is a direct reference to Satan in the garden, the serpent in the garden, robbing them of the life that they had. And he says, but let me tell you why I've come. I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. What's it look like? Does it look just like church? Yes, but not the church where we're gathered together and maintaining the institution, but it's church like we're dreaming about and we're, we're unpacking together, where we engage, yes, with all the kingdom priorities, but as fully human men and women in which we're free now to enjoy all of life, to experience all of life, to engage with all the life under the Lordship of Christ. Whether we eat, whether we drink, whatever we do, we're doing it to the glory of God. It's where our heart are awakened and we begin to actually experience this gift of our existence and humanity to the glory of God. We begin to engage with beauty in different pockets in every day and relate with the author of beauty. We begin to, begin to engage with scripture, not as just a religious manual, but as a manual for our humanity, how to come alive. We begin to engage with the story, the great story of God's glory that you and I are summoned into. When I come out of that prison cell, I come out and I'm now part of the show. I'm not the star, but I'm significant in that story. We worship in all of life. We engage with our brokenness together. We love. And we learn to serve. 
So here's the deal. This whole notion of life, the living part of following Jesus, following Jesus is not going through religious motions, but it's living with a capital L. And when I start to get that, here's what I realize. I will never fully get it alone. Only in community. There's that old, old story. It's been repeated many times in various contexts about the, the five or six blind men that uh, try to identify an elephant just by feel. If they do it, you know, one guy feels the legs. He says, this is, this is a tree. Another feels the tail. He says, this is a snake. Etc. Etc. Not until they all get together and, and bring what they're all experiencing together do they get the larger picture. I'm not going to fully get what it means to follow Jesus without you guys. In fact, I loved what we confessed earlier in our reading. I don't know if you noticed it. We confessed that we've mistaken our part for the whole. That it's just about me and Jesus. Is it about me and Jesus? Of course. Is it just about me and Jesus? Of course not. In fact, me and Jesus-ism is dangerous Christianity. In fact, it's not biblical Christianity, which is why we now need to bring in the second part. There's following Jesus. And let's start realizing and seeing that, you know what? It's, it's, it's scripture, it's discipleship, it's worship but it's also living our lives fully underneath his lordship, his leadership. It's living. Now let's look at the second part, together. And remember I said, relate the following Jesus with the word living in that first Peter 2, 5. Now let's relate the word together with the word stones. Some of you are thinking, what in the world? All right, so go back to the text. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, here's your cue, like living stones. Boy, I think we can improve just a tad. Yeah, let's try it again. I know I sprung it on you. And you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Now, some of you are OCD. And this has really been bothering you. I've not commented on it. You've been looking, what's a brick doing up on the table? So relax now, let's talk about it. This is a brick. Is that deep or what? So uh, here we go. There's something wrong with this brick. You know what's wrong with it? Bricks are not meant to be alone, unless you use them as a doorstop or as a bookend. But neither are the reasons that bricks are made. You know, there's not, there's not a brick maker out there saying this is going to be a great doorstop. <laughs> bricks are made, what? To be with other bricks. And when they're not with other bricks, they look unnatural. When Peter says, you also like living stones, he's not referring to rocks. And when he says, are being built into a spiritual house, he's not referring to something in the suburbs. He's referring to the stones of the temple. It's dominant in any Jew's perspective. The temple in Jerusalem was one of the wonders of the world. It was Herod's temple built in about 30 BC. 
extraordinary. You can, just looking at the ruins today, you can get a picture of it. And that temple was built with stones, big ones, not little rocks, big bricks, if you will, but stones that had been hewn out of quarry. Some of them were four feet by three feet by 10 feet. In fact, the largest that they've discovered is a little over 10 feet, a little over 10 feet, and a little less than 50 feet. 650 metric tons. The historian Josephus said only the gods could move it. It's a mystery to modern engineers how they moved them around. You go to the Wailing Wall today, you see these stones. Uh, now they've been, it, it was toppled and they've rebuilt it. 70 AD was destroyed by the Romans, they rebuilt it. That's why it doesn't look quite as together. And actually the Wailing Wall today is about 60 feet high. The original wall was another 80 feet higher than that. It was dominant. Whenever you were in Jerusalem, you were inside of the temple. Mark chapter 13. Disciples, they're walking along. The disciple says, one of the disciples says, as he was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones. What magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings? Jesus replied. Not one, one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. These stones were brought to the temple to create the house of God. It is where the temple in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the temple was where the presence of God was seen to be. It's where God imaged himself to the world. And now Jesus is saying, not one stone's going to be left on another. His prophecy was true. 70 AD, the Romans toppled Jerusalem. And you still see the piles of rubble to this day. It took them about 18 months, by the way, to dismantle because there were over two and a half million of these stones. But you know what else was Jesus was saying? He was not just prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem. He was announcing, because I am here. I'm the new covenant, and I am coming to restore all things. Let me make something very clear. The destruction of this temple also means that God is changing his address. Talk about the beauty of the gospel. God will not just be confined to a house built by human hands, but a house made up of living stones that are together walking in community in imaging him and experiencing him and tasting life together. Now, it was against rabbinical law for these stones, to, for the sound of a chisel to be heard within the temple courts. So the tectons, the Jewish stonemasons, uh, they called them tectons, they would carve out these stones in a quarry on the other side of the Kidron Valley, miles away.
And they were measured to perfection. The one disadvantage of you looking at these, these are all looking the same. The stones and the wall, they were different sizes. Everyone fashioned though perfectly. And what Peter is doing is continuing what Jesus had announced and saying, listen, you are now going to be the temples of the Holy Spirit. You are the ones. They're going to be walking together, living together, doing life together. You are living stones, living following Jesus, stones together. And you're being built into a spiritual house. But here's the deal. So many of us think it's me and Jesus. And we call this church. Do you hear what Jad said in the video? We, we, you, kids will play in parallel. So we say, well, hey, if we just get together and don't kill each other, maybe we're, it's good. But then when we kids begin to play in cooperation with one another, then all of a sudden you start seeing some beautiful and powerful and significant things start to happen. And then you start seeing people around saying, I want to be a part of that. Because it's not good for man to be alone. But I'm not sure of all of why. And it's these people that are living and throbbing with the life of the gospel saying, hey, come figure out this life thing with us. You too. Oh, we're not complete yet. But God's doing a work. It's when each one of us realizes we belong together to not just be religious for an hour and a half on a Sunday when we don't have anything else to do, but to be together as his people and image him. Maybe now you'll understand, I think I do more, why Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when he was in solitary confinement, the German pastor, why he said, it is easily forgotten that the fellowship of Christian brothers and sisters is a gift of grace, a gift of the kingdom of God that any day may be taken from us. That the time that still separates us from utter loneliness may be brief indeed. Therefore, let him who has until now had the privilege of living in a common, a common Christian life with other Christians praise God's grace from the bottom of his or her heart. Let him thank God on his knees and declare it is grace and it's nothing but grace that we're allowed to live in community with Christian brothers or sisters. So, several questions. Who? Who is God calling you to do this with? To follow Jesus with? People at work, family members, people sitting near you now, I don't know. It's a question I want you to ask yourself. Second question is how? How do we intentionally do this together? Is it getting together for a meal? People say, well, that's not, that's not religious enough. Are you kidding me? In the New Testament, it was all about eating together. In fact, the Lord's Supper, then, you know, now it's a thimble and a, and a cavity-sized wafer. Back then, it was a meal. It was doing life together. 
Maybe it's serving together. Maybe it's going to somebody's ball game, kids' ball games together. That's church. Church everywhere. And some of you are thinking, well, I don't know, uh, who am I going to, I don't have anybody. I'm just new to the community, or maybe I don't know anyone, and so forth. Fine, go back to the tent, find somebody in a t-shirt and say, I want to find some other bricks. I want to find some other stones, some living stones to, to journey with. So what do we do when we're together? I don't know, the New Testament might have a few things to say about that. In fact, if you do a little search on one another's in the New Testament, here are some things that you and I can do together about love one another, bear one another's burdens, serve one another, be kind to one another, show honor to one another, encourage one another, strengthen one another, build up one another, receive one another, edify one another, do not judge one another, forgive one another, show hospitality to one another, greet one another, accept one another, be devoted to one another, admonish one another, regard one another as more important than one another, comfort one another, live in peace with one another, abound in love for one another. I think that means that we're to do life with one another. Yes. I'm going to get hurt. Yes, there will be disappointment. But it's figuring it out together. That's maturity. A couple of days after Andrew summited Denali, I was in my office and I noticed a photo that I hadn't really paid attention to for a while. It was of Andrew and he's nine years old. And he and I are on the top of Mount Snuffles. It's a 14,000-foot peak down in the San Juan Mountains of Colorado. And Andrew had said, I want to climb a 14er, Dad. And what you don't know, and you're about to find out, is the significance of that is when Andrew was nine years old, he was terrified of heights. He said, but I want to do it. I want to do it with you, obviously. Sneffels is a great climb. It's strenuous, but pretty clear-cut until you get about 30 feet from the summit, and there's a V-shaped notch. And if you're a rock climber, it's a class three to class four move, and it's precarious because you, there's a sheer drop-off. People have died there. I walked Andrew through that and said, I'll be your, your dad railing, and we're going to do this together, and he did. He conquered his fear, and 15, 20 minutes later, I got somebody to take this photo of us. That night, we were back. We camped out for a couple of days, and we headed back, though, to Telluride to a condo. Uh, it was way after bedtime. I walked past Andrew's room, and I heard crying. I stuck my head in. I said, buddy, you okay? Yeah. I said, oh, I thought I heard you crying. He said, yeah, Dad, I, I'm just so happy. I can't believe I did it. And then he said something far more mature than I would expect from, I know myself when I was nine. It's something that you'll hear adults say, but they're saying it in more of a flattering way. They don't really believe it. Andrew believed it. He said this. Dad, I could not have done it without you. This following Jesus thing, I can't do it without you guys. And me acknowledging that is not immaturity or weakness, it's maturity. And the courage of vulnerability and the desire to live life in a capital L way. 1 John chapter 3, verse 14. 
We know that we've passed from death to life. How do we know? What's a primary indication that you and I are out here, not in there? Because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Matt Mayer wrote a song about love is what holds us together. Actually, love is the mortar. It's messy. It's, it's, it's sticky. It's, it's not easy. But man, oh man, when we start saying we're going to learn this love thing together, that's when we live. And oh, may God give you and me the grace to follow Jesus together, to be living stones being built into a spiritual house in which Jesus shows himself in our culture that's disintegrating. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you call us. Thank you that you give us what we need when you do call us. And I want to thank you for everyone within the sound of my voice right now. And for the agenda you've got in their life, the summons that you've placed on their lives, the summons that enables us to have hope for our humanity and hope for our culture. To not just be a bunch of bricks in a building, but to be living stones in community. And thank you for the love that you give us Love that enables us to be built into that spiritual house. And I pray that you'd give us the courage to trust you by receiving your love, but also to trust you by giving your love away to the other stones that you've placed in our lives. May we as Northland be distributed stones gathered in clusters of loving community for the sake of our culture and for the sake of your glory. I pray this in the name of the one who's loved us first. Amen.